Talo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Oau o Koroe Hawkins. Coming up. Although it is grim, it is definitely not new for Pacific people who are experiencing what that report says on paper. What does the latest climate report from the UN Chief Scientific Agency mean for the Pacific? So I think for a lot of people will really open their eyes to the reality of what Australia and New Zealand does in the service of other bigger powers. We continue our Talanoa on Australia and New Zealand's spy operations in the Pacific. There are country-specific reasons why women are not getting into Parliament. And we discuss some of the issues and possible solutions to the low representation of women in Pacific politics. But before we get into all that, in response to the interview on yesterday's show with Kalo Afiaki from Pacific Climate Warriors on a court case looking at aspects of Inaya Tonune, the Climate Change Commission's advice to government on climate action, the Commission asked us to clarify its position with this written statement from Commission Chair Rod Carr, read here by my colleague Finau Fonua. Our advice demonstrates an ambitious evidence-based approach to meeting New Zealand's emissions reduction targets while recognizing the need for an equitable and sustainable transition. Our advice on emissions budgets and the admissions reduction plan would see us meet the 2050 target set by Parliament, and the applicant is not challenging this. The point of difference between the parties is how quickly emissions should be reduced between now and 2030. The applicant argues that there ought to be deeper and steeper cuts in admissions between now and 2030, regardless of the impact. We recognize that the intent of the proceedings is to ensure Aotearoa is taking action to address climate change. However, claims we are not sufficiently ambitious are wrong and misrepresent our advice. We are confident in our advice and will be rigorously defending it. Out of respect for the judicial process, while the matter is before the court, we won't be commenting further at this stage. The United Nations Chief Scientific Agency on Climate Change released its latest report on Monday. The IPCC Working Group 2 report on climate impacts, adaptation and vulnerability says man-made climate change is causing unprecedented damage to the natural environment and the livelihoods of billions of people. It also says global warming is set to rise beyond 1.5 degrees by 2040 unless the world commits to drastically reduce its carbon emissions from the use of fossil fuels. For nations on the front lines, like ours in the Pacific, the consequences will be disastrous with an increase in climate hazards such as sea level rise, more frequent and severe extreme weather events, flooding and droughts, among others. 350 Pacific Climate Warriors Council of Elders member Brianna Fruin says the findings in the report aren't new for the region. Ms Fruin is a prominent youth voice in international climate advocacy and spoke to RNZ Pacific's regional correspondent Kelvin Anthony about the report and what it means for Pacific people. The IPCC report is definitely not new for Pacific people. The report confirms what frontline communities have been saying for many years now, um, that the frequency and the intensity of the climate impacts are rapidly increasing and will continue to do so. And so every time our IPCC report comes out, although it is grim, Um, it is definitely not new for Pacific people who are experiencing what that that report says on paper. Now, the report does confirm with 
very high confidence that the world is due to surpass the 1.5 degrees goal, which will mean the irreversible climate impacts for nations most vulnerable. Does that worry you? 100%. It, it is always worrying to see new climate reports come out. And although it is somewhat of heartbreaking experience reading the sad science come out year after year, I think we also have to remind ourselves that this shouldn't be a wake-up call that a lot of us have known this for a long time, that fossil fuels did this. But, you know, we also know exactly how to reclaim our futures back from the fossil fuel industry. And that really has to do with pushing leaders and big corporations to cut their funding off from the hands that are feeding this crisis so that we can get back on track and we can reclaim back the future that these reports are, are saying is not possible. As you mentioned earlier on, that uh, these reports come out and they're very quick. And uh, so what does this mean for the Pacific? I think the Pacific will continue to fight. No matter what the, these reports say, we have been doing the work. A lot of people say this is um, a red alarm or it's a, a red flag for countries, but we've known this for decades now. We've been living in a state of red for decades and we can only continue to be resilient like we have to show that we are the climate leaders that the world should should follow because we have been pushing the world for a long time to move away from extractive industries and, and the this attitude that we can continue to extract from the earth and nothing will happen to us. And so I think we have to continue to, to lead the way in how we would like to treat this environment because the Pacific have always been the leaders in this. Why do you think that the years and years of uh, advocacy of, of the science that's available, why I feel like the simple answer to that is money. You can get away with a lot when you have a lot of money. And, and a lot of the times, money means power. And so if you can pay off lobbyists to show up in, in climate negotiations and pretend that there's not an issue, or if you can pay off people to come in and greenwash a lot of these conversations, it will get you far. But, you know, there comes a point where money will not be enough because at the end of the day, we can't can't eat money and we can't drink money and we can't survive under houses made of papered notes. And so I feel like we're coming to a point where these industries can no longer buy us out because climate changers start to impact them as well and their families. And so although we've lived in decades of lies and deception and an era of, of selling us out, I feel like that will come to an end and it has to come to an end. How do you see Australia and New Zealand help on, on this issue? Australia and New Zealand are always saying that they're our, our big brother and sister. And I think that in on the issue of climate change, this is their chance to prove that they truly are a Pacific neighbor. They truly are a big brother and big sister to Pacific Islands. And they need to commit to keeping fossil fuels in the ground, to stop exploring their own fossil fuel industries and cutting off financial ties to places where they have invested money in this destructive industry that we know is causing the climate crisis. And the IPCC report is um, confirming that. A New Zealand military intelligence officer has shared being morally conflicted about helping the governments of Australia and New Zealand spy on Pacific countries. 
speaking on the condition of anonymity to investigative journalist Nikki Haga and the Australia Declassified website. They said they found it offensive that even normal military and service personnel on disaster relief or aid missions in the Pacific were given targets to gather intelligence on. Nikki Haga, who broke the story of Australia and New Zealand spying on the Pacific in 2015, says this new source coming forward just shows the practice is continuing. Haga says it's disingenuous for Australia and New Zealand to be ramping up its support and diplomacy in the Pacific, on the one hand, while continuing to spy on their Pacific friends with the other. In this second of a three-part Talanoa series, I'm joined by investigative journalist, author Nikki Haga, and the co-founder of Declassified Australia, Anthony Lowenstein. If you missed part one, in which Haga outlines his reasons for pursuing investigations and reporting on this topic, you can find it under Pacific Waves on our website, rnzi.com, or just check out the first March episode of our Pacific Waves podcast, available on most major podcast platforms. We pick up our Talanoa today with Anthony Lowenstein talking about Declassified Australia's collaboration with Nikki Haga and why he thinks it's important to shine a light on these kinds of issues. It is. Look, I'm Sydney-based and I've been a journalist for about nearly 20 years and do a lot of investigative work around the world and often been to places on the ground from Afghanistan to Palestine and elsewhere. And one of the things that really struck me for a long time uh, is that how little critical reporting there is, and I'm talking about Australia but much of the West, and I'm guessing Nikki will agree with this, how little critical reporting there is about the reality of how our countries actually do act in the world as opposed to what we're told. So I um, know there's an organisation launched a few years ago called Declassified UK, essentially does what we're trying to do here in Australia, namely to report critically on how the UK's relationship with the world actually works as opposed to what most of the mainstream media says. So last year, Peter Cronow, who is a former senior journalist with Four Corners, which is one of the biggest TV current affairs programs here in Australia, he and I founded Declassified Australia. And the aim of it really, as I said, is to do reporting, original reporting on a range of issues. We've done obviously this piece here with Nikki which I think is a really insightful piece that I think for a lot of people will really open their eyes to the reality of what Australia and New Zealand does in the service of other bigger powers. We've done some reporting about um, how one of Australia's most influential think tanks, ASPE, is very much pushing for war against China and it's that, that organisation's ties to the defence industry and a range of other pieces. And the aim, I guess, is to do something independently and to show that with some notable exceptions, to be sure, so much of the mainstream media just doesn't report this. I don't say that because it's a conspiracy, none of that. I think generally most journalists prefer to be close to power because it's easier, because it doesn't take as much work and they like to be duchessed by governments or think tanks or whatever it may be. And I guess I've never felt that way about what journalism should be, whether it's on the ground in a conflict zone or based here in Australia. So that's kind of been the genesis of what we're trying to do with Declassified Australia. Thanks, Anthony. And there is also the element of needing things quickly and, and you know, deadlines and all of that, which does not play well with this kind of reporting on important issues that people don't want to talk to you about or aren't going to give you information about, isn't there? That's definitely true. I mean, look, obviously, as a journalist myself, I'm acutely aware of often the dwindling attention span of a lot of people. I think social media has contributed to that. And I'm not saying that as someone who doesn't use social media. I do a lot. I think it's 
for me at least, an important uh, source of information for a lot of stories. But one of the things we're trying to do with Declassified is to not simply go to the very quick news cycle. Obviously, yes, we're going to respond to what's going on. Yes, we haven't done a story yet, but a lot of tweets and other stories around the current situation with Russia or Ukraine, the world happens. We can't ignore the reality of what's going on. But the aim is to do longer form investigative pieces, which take time. And the aim of it is to make people in power upset. I mean, that's the point. And I think it's also to challenge, hopefully, not just governments, but also a lot of journalists and media to either do better or to make them realise that what I call embedded journalism, which I think in many ways is being very close to government advisors or ministers or whatever it may be, or business, is not journalism, it's stenography. And it doesn't have to be that way. Thank you, Anthony. Your, your views on, on that, Nikki, if I can? About journalism. Um, <laughs> I, I must say, personally, and this is a New Zealand perspective, I, I don't like criticising the journalists themselves who work very hard in under-resourced media organisations. And many of them, I think, are many of us, idealistic people who really care about what, we, what we're doing and want to do a good job for the public. But I'm... It's just the fact of life when you're doing stories like the one which we're talking about today and many others. You can't do them quickly. You couldn't be, I, I couldn't be told, please produce a story on Sarsfield expiring and definitely be able to produce it the same day or the same week. I'd have to find sources. I'd have to, I'd have to dig things out. I, I might not find the sources. And so there's some subjects, there are some important subjects which can only be done by people who have got plenty of time and plenty of patience and don't have deadlines. Most Pacific nations have little or no female representation in their parliaments and despite efforts from various quarters to alter this, there are few signs change is coming. But Australian academic Jess Collins is convinced more leadership programs at the community level in Pacific societies should lead to more political representation for women. Dr Collins is a research fellow at the Lowy Institute and Don Wiseman asked her why women are not getting elected to Pacific parliaments. Across the Pacific... The different contexts are playing into why women are being held back from Parliament. So I would say on a more general note, there are some really difficult to budge uh, socio-cultural norms that are playing into why women are struggling to get represented in Parliament. But across the board, in every single country, there are country-specific reasons why women are not getting into Parliament. So. If we take a look at Samoa, for example, in Samoa they have a complex socio-political system in which Matais or the chiefs are the only people that can actually get represented into parliament. Now, uh, one out of ten villages in Samoa that don't let women become Matais. And so in those villages, they're facing that barrier to getting into political representation. There's a very small percentage of women who are Matais anyway. That's correct. So 7% of women in Samoa are Matais. But the good news is that 50% of those women are high chiefs. And so there's more likelihood of them going on to represent in Parliament if they so choose to do. If we look at PNG, because it's so relevant, it's got an election very soon, mm-hmm. and they've had this situation where they have a vast number of MPs for the country and very, very few women over the years, none at the moment. Lots of women have stood. I think the, the greatest number is planning this next election. But the biggest barrier they run into is both opposition from men and opposition from women. Yes, 
That's right. So there will be um, a record number of women running for parliament, no doubt, in this election. Um, but it still represents only 5%. Well, at the last election in 2017, it was only 5% of the candidacy. So we're still talking long, uh, smaller numbers in terms of the, the magnitude of people running for parliament there. It is notoriously difficult to get re-elected in PNG Parliament once you're in there. So people are looking at one-term stints only. And women are facing extra barriers because there's, you know, there's deeply ingrained sociocultural norms that apply gendered roles to women. There's also the difficulty of money politics in Papua New Guinea. So essentially candidates or politicians that are already uh, serving in Parliament essentially buy votes to get re-elected or to get elected in the first place. And women in Papua New Guinea uh, have generally uh, not always, but have less access to finance. And so they're finding it difficult to participate in those uh, money politics that are so important to getting elected these days in Papua New Guinea. Yes, it's peculiar, isn't it? Because there are a lot of parts of Papua New Guinea that are uh, matrilineal. The women you would think might be more dominant and they're not. That's right. But um, if you take a look at, I think, in uh, Bougainville, that is a matrilineal society, I think, and they're doing well there. But Papua New Guinea is a diverse place. Uh, it's probably one of the most culturally diverse countries in the world. And so there is a village-to-village complexity. So uh, when you're looking at Papua New Guinea, it's really difficult to, you know, sort of generalise on, you know, the, the systems there that are in place that are preventing women from getting forward because there is such a cultural diversity across uh, the country there. So there's been a lot of movement, and I guess a lot of it has been external, trying to get more women into these parliaments. And that hasn't worked to this point anyway. So what do they need to do? Reserved seating, I think, is really important. We've seen in Samoa the uh, successes of reserved seatings. Uh, I know it almost caused a constitutional crisis at the previous election uh, last year, but it's been really important to be able to get women through the parliamentary system there. There has been talks about reserved seating or quotas in Papua New Guinea. They've been on the table since 2011. A bill was passed to amend the constitution in 2011 so that uh, they could pass the enabling legislation to allow for those reserved seating. But unfortunately, that legislation is yet to be passed. At the moment, in Papua New Guinea, they're debating having five reserved seats for women on a more sort of regional seating, but those seats are yet to be created, and I doubt they'll be created by this year's June election. I think the other thing that we really need to do across the Pacific is push these leadership programs that are happening at the uh, community level and at the household level. Now, this is a generational change. This, is some, this isn't something that's going to be pushed through quickly. These things take time. It takes a whole-of-community approach, a whole-of-the-household approach, and I think those grassroots programs are really super important to be able to help women and men push through those gendered roles and gender norms that are holding women back. Who is doing that? Who, who is leading that grassroots community push? There are a lot of uh, initiatives. The Department of Foreign Affairs in Australia, for example, has had for the past six years a program for Pacific Women's Leadership. That's transitioning at the moment to Pacific Women Lead, and that's going to be run by and designed by uh, Pacific women. And I think that's really important to have that empowerment there. So Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia will be funding that program. But of course, there's local programs as well that are helping with the leadership. For example, the Seven Sisters NGO that is run by Papua New Guinean women. 
and they're helping women get elected in Papua New Guinea. We've also got MPs in Australia, like the independent MP, Kathy McGowan, who is supporting women to get elected. We've also got the former MP from Papua New Guinea, Carol Kidu, who's doing a lot of work on the ground at the moment, just supporting those women, teaching them, training them, prepping them for the election and trying to really boost their chances of succeeding in the election that's coming up this year. While there's been a lot of admiration for the reserved seats and the reserved seats, for instance, in Bougainville and then, uh, as you mentioned, in Samoa, but there are also concerns about those women in the reserve seats being marginalised. Yes, and I think that's not an issue that's uh, specific to the Pacific, of course, you know, in, in countries like Australia, we often have the debate about quotas or reserve seating in Parliament. And that is the issue. But I think when we really need to use everything in our toolkit to help women get ahead and to break break through those barriers, I think they're really important just to, to set the standard of what we expect in parliaments in Australia and across the world. That's Specific Waves for today. Thanks for listening. You can catch us online at rnzi.com or as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Tofa. <laughs>